the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. Now when the Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus, they noticed that some of his disciples were eating with defiled hands, that is, without washing them. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they thoroughly wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And they do not eat anything from the market unless they wash it. And there are also many other traditions that they observe, the washing of cups, pots, and bronze kettles. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Isaiah prophesied rightly about you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. You abandon the commandment of God and hold to human tradition. Then he called the crowd again and said to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going in can defile. But the things that come out are what defile. For it is from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come. Fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, and folly. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of the Holy Trinity, one God. Amen. Tradition is a powerful thing. I was reminded of that in an incident that occurred uh, to me in South Dakota when I was working for the bishop there. Part of my responsibility while working for him was to help him to care for those congregations who were going through the search process. And I would often, uh, as we didn't have a lot of congregations that were looking for rectors, so we never had more than a couple at a time. And I would often try to be in those parishes quite frequently. Well, one Sunday I was in a particular parish that had just uh, done a renovation of their church, and it was a beautiful renovation. They had moved, actually they left the altar, what we might call the high altar, was at the front of the church as it always was. They established a freestanding altar, and then behind the freestanding altar where the old altar rail had been, there they placed the choir, bringing the choir out from the sides of the chancel. So it looked much like our church does today, but the one thing that was really different for this congregation I found out later was the fact that there was no altar rail. Well, for whatever reason, the particular Sunday I was there, I included an illustration about the altar rail and what its meaning was, how the, some of the history of it. And uh, people are quite surprised to learn that altar rails were introduced in the 16th century during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. And the purpose of them 
was to keep the animals from getting into the sanctuary area, which is the immediate area of the altar, and defiling the altar. (laughs) Because in those days, you can imagine, churches were open, doors were left wide open, everybody was walking to and fro through those places, and the animals were coming too. So they were put there to keep the animals away from the altar. Over time, of course, they took on a different meaning. For me, and I'm sure for many of you, an altar rail is a part of our experience of the holy. It's a place for us to come and kneel. But the original purpose was quite different. Well, I tell you that because I think it's very, it can become very dangerous for us to place too much emphasis on things that have become a tradition. The end of this story with regard to the church I visited. After I had preached the sermon, I was at coffee hour. And someone came up to me and said, did you see what happened? And I, of course, had noticed nothing. And I wouldn't have because the person they were talking about was someone I didn't know. The woman said to me, so-and-so received communion. He did. Is that unusual? Yes. He's never received communion since the altar rail was removed. For him, realizing the real purpose of the altar rail freed him of the tradition and made it possible for him to approach the altar and receive communion. We can be bound by traditions in ways that truly are bad for our spiritual health. And what we see as something that is important to us perhaps has displaced the holy or has kept us from going to the holy. The philosopher Nietzsche wrote this, The reverence accorded to a tradition increases with time until the tradition itself is thought to be holy rather than pointing to the holy. Once the tradition becomes holy, the holy is forgotten. That seems to be the situation that Jesus finds himself facing as he is confronted by the Pharisees and some of the scribes. But before we go to that text, I want to say something about the Pharisees. Pharisee means separated one. And it was a rather small sect. Uh, Scholars estimate that there were about 6,000 of them. But they were the most influential sect during Jesus' time. They believed the Hebrew Scriptures. But in addition to that, they understood that Moses had left an oral tradition. And that oral tradition was also as important as the law found in the Scriptures. And that, of course, meant that they needed to study the oral tradition as well as scriptures and interpret them. And as they did so, the law became bigger and bigger and bigger and more burdensome as time went on. We are sometimes too critical, I think, of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were trying to do what we try to do, I think, every day. They were trying to live righteous lives. And their understanding of how to do that was to understand God's law completely and then to live that law, to apply that law to every aspect of life. But with that as a backdrop, we now see these Pharisees and scribes coming to Jesus from the temple in Jerusalem. One can imagine that the word had gotten around that Jesus is a dangerous man. You need to go out there and do something about it. I can hear somebody (laughs) directing a a group of people to go out, find out what's going on, and then come back and tell us. So they go out and they find that Jesus' disciples are eating without having washed their hands. And this is a terrible offense. Ritual washing 
especially the ritual washing of hands before eating, was a way of bringing all of life, including the meal we were about to partake, bringing that into all of creation under the law, under the sacred law. And this washing wasn't a matter of cleaning the skin, but it was a ritual washing, a purification. In fact, the word that's used for that can be translated baptize. They were making holy their hands. They were making holy that time when they were going to be sharing a meal. And it was an important religious tradition. And here were Jesus' disciples ignoring it. Jesus had a different understanding, it seems, of the law. But it was hard for the Pharisees to get out of their traditional understanding, to see what Jesus was pointing to. And in trying to keep every dot and tittle of the law, they were missing the spirit of the law. Jesus' argument with the Pharisees is is perhaps uh, made even clearer at the end of Matthew's Gospel. And there he says, You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. There's a saying about tradition. You have to listen carefully to really pick it up. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. I'll say it one more time because you really have to think about it. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. I don't think Jesus was condemning tradition. Tradition is good. It's good for us, especially when it is a part of an embodied living faith. But I do think he was condemning traditionalism. And traditionalism is when that which we see as so important becomes more important than what it's pointing to. We as a church, I think, need to be very careful about our traditions and what we think is so important. In my own life, as I was considering call to this parish, one of the things that I really struggled with was the fact that I had been formed as a priest in a more high church tradition. And the question I had in my mind was, could I, could I be rector here? Could I worship here, be a part of this community, really become a part of the community, not disrupt it, but take on your traditions, take on your living expression of the faith? And as I prayed about that over a period of weeks, it it became clear to me that what we have here, and I include myself now, is a living tradition. It is something that is alive, that feeds us as we come together. It gives order to what we do together. And I realized that some of the things that I had thought were so important, I could put aside. They weren't that important. Because the core of the living faith was here in the way that you practice your faith, and now I with you. It's so easy for us, I think, to miss the mark, and in a sense, to sin, even when we are trying to do good, when we think we are trying to do the best we can, and I think the Pharisees were in that situation. They had missed the mark, and in Matthew, Jesus made it very clear. They had missed the mark. They were focused on the wrong things. And in the meantime, the important things were missing. 
I believe that at the heart of our faith is relationship. It's very easy for us to become a part of performance-based religion as opposed to relationship-based religion. The first relationship is the relationship we have with the living God. And from that comes a living faith that results in living tradition. And that also challenges us over and over again about what it is we believe and about what is really important. As Paul said, we have to wrestle with our faith. We really struggle with it. The answers aren't like from a cookbook. There's not a checklist, which a lot of us would love to have. I lived with checklists for years, and they're wonderful. (laughs) But it doesn't work when it comes to our faith. It's a struggle. And the struggle comes when we take that relationship we have with the living God, and then we fulfill what God has also commanded us to do, and that is to be in relationship with our neighbor. Remember the command. What is the greatest commandment, they asked him. To love God with all of your being and to love your neighbor as yourself. And it seems to me it is this living faith that we take into our relationships and it is there in our relationships that our faith is lived out. Because it is in our relationships that we are truly able to show mercy and to forgive and be forgiven and to have compassion and to reach out to those who are in need. To be the Christ to the other. The priest and writer Robert Capon uh, says this about religion. Whatever the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is, it is not a religion. It is, in fact, the announcement of the end of religion. Religion is the human race's unending attempt to control God to find out what it is that I need to do in order for God to be okay with me or to figure out what I need to do so that the world is okay, so that everything kind of goes right. But that is not what Jesus was teaching. That's religion, and it's our attempt to control, and most of all, to control God. In the uh, letter to the, the epistle to the Hebrews, Uh, There's this wonderful statement that it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats uh, can save us. And I would add to that orthodox opinions or long prayers or proper behavior or ritual washing of hands for that matter. None of that can save us from our sins. The only way we can be saved from our sins, from ourself, from wrong worship, is to be in relationship with the living Christ. Because in one act, he declared that it isn't what you do, it is what I do. It was taken from us, the need to make ourselves right with God. And Jesus said, I will do that. And when I do that, and when you look upon me, you will be transformed and you will show forth the fruits of that relationship. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have been set free from religion, especially from a religion of do good works in order to get ourselves to heaven or to be right with God or to make the world right or to keep God from doing things we don't want. Jesus has freed us and he has made us whole 
And for that, we can give God thanks and praise. Amen.